Renaissance, many men sought their fortune with the sword. Many died a violent and anonymous death, but a rare few covered their names with glory. The Italians called these men the Condottieri. These are their stories. there were times that the condottieri were masters of their own destiny when they fought small battles for gold and glory or vengeance when their individual names and deeds were on the lips and the pages of every chronicler in the land but sometimes these warriors were sucked into one of the great tsunamis of history where they were tossed to and fro by the currents of chance and mischance in times like this their individual deeds were often lost like voices in a chorus during these sorts of times life and death was just as often a matter of luck as it was of skill the current of history bore guido rangoni into the city of padua on august 24th of 1509 his arrival no doubt owed as much to luck as it did to his own skill for the land around Padua swarmed with the enemies of Venice, Guido Rangoni's enemies. During the following siege, he would fight under the command of Lucius Malvezzi. We are often left to guess what exactly Guido was up to during the siege, knowing only that the men under Malvezzi's command played a pivotal role in the battle, and thus in the course of history. The eyes of Europe and beyond were all riveted to the battle developing around the city of Padua. For centuries, city walls and castles had defined civilization and the military art. Then, 15 years earlier, cannons had appeared in Italy in a big way and made walls and fortresses into something more like a joke. The Venetians, especially stimulated by the leadership of the merchant-turned-warrior Andre Gritti, thought that they had a strategy to defeat the cannons. But of course, everyone trying their hand against armies with cannons at that time thought they had a strategy. Now the armies of the German emperor, the king of France, the pope, and even the Spanish king were coming to Padua to give Gritti's plan a trial by fire. By the time Guido Rangoni rode into Padua, the enemies already surrounded the city. In a way, Guido was lucky, very lucky, just to make it into Padua. But he was also fortunate that he would get to play a part in this great drama. Hugo Papoli was still trapped in his prison cell in the Castel Sant'Angelo in Rome. At best, he could only hear about the unfolding siege of Padua from his loyal servants, bringing him in word from the outside world. Despite his arrest, Hugo seems to have still been a supporter of the Pope and would have been pleased with the news coming from Padua. It was certainly looking bad for Venice. They had expected the French and the Germans to approach from the south of the city. Venice had especially fortified the walls and the gates on the south side of the city. They had covered the approaches from the south with crossbowmen and artillery fire. They had dug trenches to force the enemy to move along a narrow path and so be even more exposed to volleys of crossbow bolts. And on this path, the Venetians had emplaced four wooden barriers to prevent the enemy from reaching the gate. 
the German emperor determined to plant his siege guns opposite the southern end of the wall anyway. So he sent a body of French and German troops to drive the enemy back into the city. This body of troops included some of the most famous knights in France, men like the renowned Chevalier Bayard. They attacked over a causeway and into the teeth of the enemy's defenses. With cannons blazing at them from the city and crossbow bolts whizzing in the air from the trenches on either side of the attack, the French and the Germans carried the first three barricades with no great trouble. The fourth barricade was defended with strength and with determination. Reinforcements poured in from the city to hold it as it was the last main obstacle between the enemy and the Holy Cross Gate. The Venetian determination here was so great, the men-at-arms in the French and German group had to get down off of their horses and attack the barrier personally. Then they drove the Venetians back into the city behind the safety of their walls on the Holy Cross Gate. The trenches so laboriously constructed by the Venetians would provide great protection for the siege guns that the German emperor was going to emplace there in the weeks to come. All Venice's painstaking work on defenses had achieved was to force the nobles of France to get down off their horses and get into the mud and fight. If the Venetians could not defeat an enemy attacking where they were strongest, Padua was sure to fall. The date of this defeat was August 24th, the same day Guido Rangoni arrived. Guido found Padua on edge, nerves frayed, and morale sinking among the men tasked to defend the city. The enemy had attacked them at their strongest point, and yet the best Venice could do was to offer the enemy the inconvenience of having to fight on foot instead of on their horses. In siege operations, the best terms of surrender for a garrison came before the fight became earnest. As the fight went on, as more blood was spilled than the less mercy the garrison could expect when they lost, if they lost. But surrender in Padua would lead to an enemy attack on the city of Venice itself. Padua had to repel the invaders. Andre Gritti and the rest of the leaders were determined to fight to their very last breath to defend Padua. However determined they were, to Guido it must have seemed like he had chosen the losers once again. Guido Rangoni had a penchant for choosing the wrong side in a fight. Left to his own devices, he would not have chosen the Republic of Venice. They had little to recommend themselves in this fight against the League of Cambrai, an alliance that included almost every other country in Europe. So why had he chosen to fight for Venice? When it came to troops, Venice was severely outnumbered. They were also completely outgunned by the enemy. They had no allies to speak of. Rumor had it. They were even in talks with the Ottoman Turks for an alliance. And yet the Turks did not want to shackle themselves to what they were sure was Venice's corpse. But what Venice did have, what really convinced Guido, was prisoners. In specific, one prisoner, Hannibal Bentavoglio, Guido Rangoni's uncle. 
Guido had always been tight with Hannibal and loyal to the Bentavoglio cause, though they had had nothing but disasters over the last three years. Hannibal was locked in a prison in Venice and charged with abandoning the doomed city of Ravenna a few months before. This was a crime that Venice could easily use to justify a hanging in the St. Mark's Square or a beheading elsewhere in Venice, if the mood hit them. The men of the lagoon could be awfully temperamental when it came to condottieri that refused to die when and where they were told to. Venice had a great reason to hold on to Hannibal Bentivoglio. They wanted to offer him to the Pope in exchange for peace. Venice desperately needed to shrink the list of enemies ranged against them. They could not fight all of Europe. The Pope looked to be the easiest to buy off. They'd already given him all the Venetian land he claimed, but the Pope was being obstinate about peace. He was, after all, from the craggy and windswept land of Liguria, known for its beautiful vistas and curmudgeonly people, and he was doing his level best to live up to that stereotype. Venice thought that Hannibal Bentivoglio might be a useful bargaining chip with the Vicar of Rome. Hannibal's head was pretty darn close to the top of the Pope's Christmas list. Guido wanted to keep Hannibal's head attached to his shoulders. He hoped that his new commander, Lucius Malvezzi, would use his juice with Venice to keep Hannibal alive. Malvezzi could point out that the Venetians were depending on allies of Hannibal to defend Padua, men like Sebastian Manzino, brother of the now-dead legendary swordsman Mancino da Bologna. Sebastian was quite possibly the single best infantry captain in Venetian service at that time. Venice was getting a great cavalry commander in Guido Rangoni. If anyone doubted Guido's bona fides, he could point to this fact. He had left his castle with a hundred mounted crossbowmen, ridden through enemy-controlled territory, and arrived in Padua with his company in good order. Oh yeah, and he had doubled the size of it to 200 light cavalry. Originally, only half his men were supposed to join Malvezzi's outfit, but the garrison was being quickly reorganized after Venice's butt-whooping outside the gate of the Holy Cross, and now almost all the light cavalry in Padua was directly under the command of Lucius Malvezzi. To Malvezzi's cavalry would fall the dangerous assignment of leaving the city and raising hell amongst the enemy. Their first mission was critical to the safety of the city. Beyond the walls of Padua, the German emperor had gathered forces estimated at 60,000 people, including those who fought with the spade instead of the sword. It was a miracle that the German emperor could assemble such a large force. He was perpetually bankrupt, so much so that his nickname was No Money Maximilian. It meant that there was definitely an expiration date for the siege, and it was the job of the men guarding the ramparts to push the siege past its sell-by date. To capture Padua, No Money Max was not planning to assault the ramparts. He was going to make them cease to exist. The reason the German emperor was bankrupt was due to his profligate spending, and one of the things that he loved to spend money on the most was cannons. Big cannons. The biggest cannons ever made. To turn the walls of Padua into brick dust, No Money Max brought a hundred of these cannons over the Alps, through the mountain passes, and into Italy. The guns were now in Vicenza, some twenty miles from Padua. The largest and most famous guns, such as the Wake Up Call, 
or main gun Leo had barrels 600 millimeters in diameter. Guns like these could fire a 600 pound projectile hundreds of miles per hour into a brick wall with devastating effect. And they could do it multiple times per day. stop these guns from getting to Padua, or, at the very least, delay their arrival and help to push the siege past its expiration date. Was the enemy stupid? Did the enemy think to allow their cannons to just proceed willy-nilly toward Padua without an escort? Of course not. To protect the guns, the French and the Germans sent a force of 4,000 infantry and 2,000 men-at-arms to Vincenza. This was a far stronger force than Lucius Malvezzi could hope to put in the field. But the enemy had a weakness that would manifest throughout the siege. The various leaders of the force sent to escort the cannons could not agree on the best route to take Padua. The disagreements between so many big egos was exacerbated by there being captains from four different nationalities vying for glory in the force. So they did not assemble into one large force and proceed directly to Padua. The enemy artillery force dispersed. Some took the direct overland route. Some came by river to the south side of the city. Still others took wider, unpredictable routes. Here then was the big opportunity for Guido and the rest of Malvezzi's force. They pounced on one of these smaller forces a few miles from Vincenza, but such was the strength of the enemy force that the Venetian cavalry was driven back and sent to Padua to lick its wounds. Emperor 2, Padua 0. But the Venetian cavalry had demonstrated its ability to ride through the gaps in the enemy's defenses. Moreover, they had noted the absence of strong enemy forces around the locks, diverting water away from Padua. Malvezzi decided to reprise the action, and a few days later, he sent a fast-moving flying column with cavalry, infantry, and even a few light cannons outside of Padua once again. They made for the town of Lonigo, just a few miles outside of Vicenza. The enemy here had resurrected an ancient lock to stop the flow of the Bacchioni River to Padua, the river protecting the western side of the city. The force destroyed the lock and restored the river going back to Padua. Then they returned to Padua seemingly without the French or the Germans being able to react and stop them. With the western side of the city secure, the garrison could focus on defending the enemy's main force beyond the Holy Cross Gate to the south. Emperor 2, Padua 1. 
Malvezzi's actions, as well as that of other light forces in the service of Venice, was a painful reminder to the King of France and the German Emperor that their lines of supply were terribly vulnerable. The Lion of St. Mark still flew over several small fortresses in the lands of Venice. Raiding parties in these fortresses regularly left to attack foragers or other groups of isolated French and German troops. To undermine enemy morale in Padua and these other fortresses, the Emperor of Germany decided to make an example of the fortress of Monselice. This town and fortress guarded the route between Padua and Ferrara, where the Germans planned to get the gunpowder for their massive cannons. The work done to protect Padua had not been done to protect Monselice. The Germans turned some of their cannons against this fortress and unleashed hell. Monselice fell faster than a prize fighter on the wrong end of a Mike Tyson uppercut. Then, to let the folks in Padua know what was coming to them, the Germans put to the sword virtually the whole garrison and all the residents of town, even the babies. The Germans allowed a few prisoners to survive. They allowed these to go to Padua and give witness to what they saw. Lurid tales of the sack circulated among the garrison, down to graphic accounts of the Lanzknechts drinking the blood of babies. Obviously, this was fabricated. Anti-Semitism being all the rage in the Renaissance, this crime was naturally laid at the feet of the Jews in the service of the emperor. This claim is absurd, of course, but there were Jewish survivors from Padua in the army of the emperor, and it is likely that they were most hell-bent on exacting revenge for the crimes against their people in Padua. If life in Renaissance Italy could be summed up in four words, it was these. Payback is a bitch. It was not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It was more like two eyes for a tooth. The garrison of Padua hardly needed to be told how badly things were going for them. After Malvezzi's failure to stop the guns, the Germans had managed to get their cannons to Padua and emplace them for firing. And with Monselice gone, there was nothing to stop the fine gunpowder of Ferrara from supplying these guns. Thereafter, the garrison would begin each morning with the song of the great wake-up call, blasting the walls of Padua. And it was not just in Padua where they were awoken in this way. Even in Venice, some 25 miles away, they heard the song of the wake-up call and other cannons banging away like the sound of Venice's own death now. Yet for all the sound and the fury of these terrible guns, the walls on the south side of the city fared reasonably well. This was no accident. Sieges in the Renaissance were won and lost with sweat and determination. And shovels, lots of shovels. Driven by the Venetian Andre Gritti, the people of Padua had been digging fortifications extensively since the Venetians gained control over the city one month before. All gates, all weak points, were guarded by flanking artillery mounted on bastions that projected from the city wall. The wall itself was reinforced with a continuous earthen embankment that allowed it to successfully absorb the shock of the massive impacts delivered by the cannons. Then, even if breaches were made in the wall, Padua had built a second series of embankments with parapets and platforms for artillery in the extensive garden areas behind the walls.
This would provide cover for the garrison to rebuild the walls in the face of enemy pressure. Throughout the city, they took their best men at arms, their most skilled warriors, and they used them to bolster the infantry forces stationed around the Holy Cross Gate. They put these knights under the command of the bold Venetian commander, Marcus Bragadino. If you listen to our Halloween episode, you may remember this name. Marcus Bragadino was the father of the man who was executed in such a gruesome manner by the Turks that it helped to galvanize all of Europe to rally behind the Republic of Venice and fight the Turks. But that is much, much later in the future. Bragadino led the forces around the Holy Cross Gate on forays beyond the walls to keep the enemy on their back foot. Stripping the best men-at-arms from the other commands in Padua did weaken the other sectors of the city, though. The French and the Germans and their allies sought to take advantage of this by extending their siege works to other parts of the city. The west side of the city looked particularly vulnerable. Here, the walls were not so strong as they were on the south side. Here, the defense was based on a wide, water-filled ditch. This made it nearly impossible to cross. It was a sad bunch of bastards indeed that tried to swim through water in armor, and it made it completely impossible to tunnel under the walls. As we said earlier, sieges in the Renaissance were fought as much with the spade as they were with the sword. Well, the French and the Germans had brought their shovels to the fight, too. They soon set to digging a channel to divert the waters of the Bacaglione River away from Padua, away from the water-filled ditch that protected the west side of the city. This time, they were going to build the diversion works close to the city. This time, they were going to build it closer to their army so they could protect the works. The western side of Padua was the sector Malvezzi and Rangoni were responsible for defending. The diversion of the water seriously undermined their ability to defend the western sector of the city, an ability compromised by the loss of their best men-at-arms to the fences of the Holy Cross Gate. But the diversion of the river created a problem that echoed beyond Malvezzi's sector. Morale was already flagging inside the beleaguered city. One night, shortly into the siege, an artillery commander had deserted to the Germans, taking a few of his cannons over the walls with him. Supplies coming into the city were crucial for maintaining morale. Malvezzi wrote repeatedly to the Venetians, exhorting them to take all steps possible to make sure supplies kept coming into the city to keep that fighting spirit alive. 
as they were primarily sending supplies by riverboat. The drying up of the Bakuyoni River threatened the ability of the Venetians to supply Padua and to keep the fighting spirits going. To stop the diversion of the water, Malvezzi planned a daring attack. He joined his cavalry forces to the Umbrian infantry of Zitolo from Perugia. This infantry commander would cover his name in glory during the siege of Padua, but more on that later. They likely used another foray of Bragadino's boys on the south side to disguise their operation. To the enemy, it just appeared to be yet another raid. These men-at-arms and infantry assaulted the trenches near the walls as they had been doing for many days on. Then in the midst of this fight, everything changed. The gates were thrown open, and thousands of light cavalry and infantry forces poured out of the Holy Cross Gate. Knowing Guido Rangoni, he was almost certainly leading his men at the tip of the spear. They punched a hole through the German defenses on the south side of the city and made like bats out of hell for the diversion works on the Baclione River. A hue and cry went out quickly through the enemy forces. Here was a chance to trap the garrison on the wrong side of the walls. Here was a chance to isolate those forces of the enemy and cut them to pieces. The besiegers quickly launched an attack on the Venetian infantry, holding open a path of retreat for Malvezzi's cavalry and Zitolo's infantry. Further off, Chevalier Bayard suited up and gathered together with a command of the best warriors in the enemy camp, the French gendarmes. Perhaps it was the Chevalier himself or perhaps another of the French captains that sensed that this was the decisive moment in the siege, that here was a chance to tip the scales decisively in their favor. While the Germans were intent on attacking the enemy, holding open the lines of retreat, the French gendarmes headed toward Padua with an entirely different, an entirely more dangerous plan. Meanwhile, Malvezzi and Zitolo's forces quickly overwhelmed the enemy's engineers and pioneers. They rapidly destroyed the diversion works. As they headed back toward Padua, they could see water flowing back into the riverbed of the Bacoyone River. The first part of their mission was a success, a victory. Now they had to make it back into Padua, lest that victory become a Pyrrhic one. Five hundred years later, the details of the fight that emerged are a bit fuzzy. But this seems to have been what happened. Bragadino's men were fighting off the German Landsknechts well enough to keep open the line of retreat to the Holy Cross Gate. But they were under a tremendous amount of pressure. Meanwhile, the Chevalier Bayard and the rest of the French gendarmes approached the walls, dismounted from their horses, and assaulted the ramparts near the Holy Cross Gate. The attention of the Venetians seems to have been so fixated on the battle to keep open the line of retreat into the city that they left the ramparts relatively unguarded. Here then was an attack that threatened all of Padua. A great fight for the ramparts was joined. The gendarmes penetrated past the first line of defenses, then gained control of the second line of defenses. They stood on the precipice of victory. The defenders could not push them back out. It seemed only a matter of time before the enemy reinforced their position and collapsed the entire defense of Padua. The decisive moment then came when the commander of the garrison placed a pair of light, 
anti-personnel cannons in a well-placed position. Here they were able to fire at the enemy's forces from the side, but each shot mowed down multiple enemies, no matter how good their armor was. Under this pressure from the fighting right and left of the penetration, the French position was driven back out of Padua, out beyond the walls. Malvetsi's and Zitolo's men were able to return to Padua in victory, though the whole gambit had been a closely run perilous thing. The western side of Padua was secure. Now, Guido Rangoni and Lucius Malvezzi weren't the only cavalrymen operating outside the walls of Padua. Another light cavalry commander was there making a name for himself as well. He was a condottieri named Giovanni the Greek. Giovanni had fought alongside Rangoni in the Bentivoglio at Russi. There, they had all tried unsuccessfully to stop the much larger forces of the Pope. Unlike the missions of Rangoni and Malvezzi, which were planned and organized as part of the defense of Padua, the Greek took to raiding to pass the time. He hadn't signed up to be a condottieri to sit on his hindquarters and watch others do the fighting. He'd even been ordered by the Venetian governor, Andre Gritti, to stop leaving the city. Yeah, like that was going to stop him. The Greek was not alone. Constant skirmishing, even one-on-one -on -one duels with the enemy were going on all the time. Usually these did not have much impact on the course of the whole siege. It was more of a boys-will-be-boys kind of situation. But sometimes a raid might bring in a prisoner, a very lucky one, might bring in a captain with some knowledge of the overall scheme, such as the raid that captured Gaspare Scapi of Bologna. You might remember him from earlier on in the saga. Two years before, he had been so moved by the destruction of the Palazzo Bentivoglio that he led a revolt in the city against the Pope. He had tried desperately to bring back the Bentivoglio to Bologna. He had called for Guido Rangoni to come to the city. But now he had taken service among the Germans, most likely as a Landsknecht, who, despite their name, were often recruited in Italy. As such, he was now allies with the forces of the Pope and enemies of Guido Rangoni. After he was captured, Scapi was convinced to share all he knew with the commanders of the garrison and he told the Venetians that the enemy was shifting their attack away from the southern part of the city. The walls to the south were just too strong to beat in, even with the Germans' massive cannons. Scopi informed them that the French and Germans had identified the weak spot in the defenses of Padua and were making plans to focus the assault there. side of the city from the Holy Cross Gate stood the Codalunga Gate. This is a name familiar to all Bolognese fencers. Codalunga means long tail in Italian. It was so named because this section of the wall tailed away from the main walls of Padua. The area within the walls was too narrow to have the strong and wide earthen embankment that packed the walls to the south and absorbed the shock of cannon fire. 
nor could they count upon a watery ditch like the western side of the city. The canal that ran on the north side of the city at that time was fed by a different river than the one on the west. This river had been easily diverted. Now, the Venetians weren't stupid. They recognized the weakness of the Cotalunga Gate and the walls to either side. To prevent their destruction, they protected the walls with two powerful bastions, large towers that projected away from the walls. This did little to help the Venetian soldiers forced to man the walls. They were basically fish in a barrel required to guard the walls, while massive cannons rained massive projectiles against them. Under the rain of such force, the walls crumbled, just like the men protecting the ramparts. Try though they might to repair the walls during the few respites from fire, it was clear to everyone watching that the walls would fall. Then the Germans and French would pour in through the gap, take the city and put them all to the sword as they had done at Monselice. Could any man be blamed then for going over the wall with a white flag and giving up to the enemy? Things were going to get worse for the garrison of Padua. Throughout the early part of the siege, it seems that the Venetians had been able to get supplies into the city via boat. Malvezzi's cavalry escorted the boats in and out. So long as the river was high, they were able to use cannons on the boats to keep the enemy at bay alongside Malvezzi's cavalry. But then the enemy deployed strong forces to the east side of Padua, stopping supplies from coming into the city. The garrison had food. The garrison had wine and water. Yet these were not the things that the men of the time fought for. They wanted money, not IOUs, but sweet golden ducats. The kind of money they could literally sink their teeth into. Malvezzi's cavalry left the city once again, this time with Marcus Bragadino, the former commander of the forces around the Holy Cross Gate. Bragadino then went on to Venice to gather a massive payroll for the garrison, totaling some 40,000 ducats. When the money was ready, the Venetians sent messengers, letting Padua know that gold was on the way. From Venice itself, Bragadino led his gold-laden horses on a roundabout route through the enemy's forces. And on September 20th, Lucius Malvezzi burst from the city of Padua with 600 light cavalry and 100 men-at-arms. He made a rendezvous with Bragadino and some men escorting a mule train. They were about 10 miles from Padua and behind enemy lines. Unfortunately for Lucius Malvezzi, there was a traitor in the Venetian camp, a traitor that let the Germans and the French know what was happening that they better be on the lookout for a convoy going to get gold for the garrison and raise morale. The French came after him in the 40,000 golden ducats, but Malvezzi had been warned by friendly peasants, one of the advantages of operating in home territory. Malvezzi made hell for leather back to Padua, punching a hole through the enemy force. In the fighting, Malvezzi was wounded in the face, but he escaped. He and his riders managed once again to return to the safety of the walls, losing only eight men-at-arms and an unknown number of light cavalry and the mules carrying the money for the garrison. Or so the French thought. Just like a Hollywood caper, Bragadino had brought the mules as decoys. When the French seized the mules, they found that they were indeed decoys, with grain sacks on their backs laden with sand. The gold was with Bragadino's men and with Malvezzi now. He and the riders, and most importantly, 
the Golden Ducats made it into Padua, once again Malvezzi had bested the French cavalry. The daring episode caused morale in the city to soar with gold in their hands. The garrison of Padua was in a fighting spirit. They were going to need that fighting spirit, for on that same day, the walls around the Cota Lunga Gate finally collapsed. With one section of the wall gone, the rest of the masonry between the two bastions flanking the long tail gate crumbled like so many old cookies. Now the siege moved to its pivotal moment. To take the breach, the German emperor assembled a force of 7,500 of his best Landsknechts to follow up the attack. Thousands of German and French knights were ready to charge into the city once the breach had been seized by the pikemen and bridging equipment laid over the trenches. The commander of this section of what was once a wall was Zitolo from Perugia, he who had teamed up with Lucius Malvezzi before. He could call on a couple thousand infantry. Of course, there were reserves beyond that, but everyone in the city understood that a lasting penetration of this sector, of any sector, would mean the fall of Padua. The enemy just so outnumbered the defenders, so outgunned the defenders, they even outclassed the defenders. A large proportion of the garrison was composed of levies from the Venetian waterfronts, men who were far better with a gondola than a sword. It wasn't clear how well they would fare against professional infantrymen, but nobody was feeling optimistic about it in the Padua garrison. In the early hours of the day, the Lansknechts assembled in the siege trenches beyond the walls. Normally, most Lansknechts carried long pikes into battle. As they were going to have to scramble over rubble to get into the fight, many would have left their longer weapons behind. Fighting in the breach called for smaller pole weapons, like a partisan. Many probably went forward with just a sword and a round shield, while others carried pole axes, human can openers to use on any fully armored men-at-arms they came across. Still others bore ladders and a few groups carried cats, a kind of battering ram they were going to use to take out the bastions. The Germans prepared one last terrible bombardment, with most of the guns around the city going off nearly at once. This torrent of lead, this hurricane of death, tore into the defenders manning the breach and beyond. Even the commander Zitolo's leg was torn open by the shrapnel. Then it was showtime. The Lansknechts scrambled from their trenches and other spots beyond the walls and charged into the pile of crumbled masonry. Cannonballs came from the garrison and tore into their ranks. Men emerged from the rubble to meet the enemy and to shoot crossbows or arquebuses at the Lansknechts. But it was like trying to stop the tide with a teaspoon. On and on the Lansknechts surged until they reached the rubble, scrambling forward, clambering up rocks and smashed bricks blocking a thrust with their shield here, giving a thrust of their own there, the thwack of crossbows being shot all about. Then the enemy was driven from the rubble and sent running like rabbits. Only when the Lansknechts reached the top of the rubble could they see what they were up against, for beyond the smashed wall, 
the enemy had built a secondary wall, a ritorata as it was known. This was another embankment of earth built well behind the original wall so that it was not exposed to enemy fire. The Lonsknecks could not linger where they were, for there was a human wave pushing them forward with shouting, cursing, everyone demanding they keep moving forward. Ladders were brought to the front to attack the ritorata. This ritorata curved inward and Lanskanek soon filled a ground devoid of cover with fire all around. As they moved forward, groups of defenders set off mines laid in the ground before the ritorata that sprayed stones and balls before them like so many Claymore mines. Many Lanskaneks were killed or maimed by these mines. Then the miners turned tail and ran toward the safety of the wall as fast as their feet could carry them. Despite his wounds, Zitolo commanded the men on the Ritorata to keep shooting at the enemy and warned everyone to stay at their ground. The fate of Padua lay in the balance. They certainly could expect no quarter from the Lanskanecks. The German Lanskanecks were known for their ferocity and determination, and both qualities were on full display in this attack. They kept surging forward, but the bastion on the western side of the Ritorata exacted terrible losses on the Germans for here. Cannons could rip lanes of death through the crowd. Still, the Germans came on. They brought the fight to the very ramparts of the Ritorata where there was a sharp, nasty fight, but it was clear to the attackers that the key to this fight was the bastion. Pressing toward the Ritorata with enough force to take it allowed the defenders to exact such a terrible toll with flanking fire by crossbows and cannons. The Germans brought forward their cats to batter the bricks of the tower while fire from the many cannons beyond raked the top of the bastion. It was certain near death to stand on the bastion and try to shoot or drop stones on the guys smashing the wall below. Zitolo recognized that if he did nothing, the Germans would succeed. German artillery fire killed anyone that tried to stop the cats. And the cats did not even need to open the bastion wall since the Germans could just fill any sizable penetration with gunpowder and blow it. The time had come for decisive action. Zitola did the last thing the Germans expected. He climbed down the front of the Ritorata with his bloody wounded leg and orders his men to follow him down from the walls and to attack the Germans with sword and pike. This they did in droves. The Lanskanecks had had enough. Those who could run did that. Those who could not tried to surrender, tried. Then they ran back to the safety of their lines. Zitolo and his men followed the Germans back to their trenches. There they overwhelmed enemy gunners and spiked seven of the enemy's cannons then set fire to all the gunpowder they could find. With this done, Zitolo and his men retreated back to Padua before the enemy could take advantage of their exposed position. They left a wake of men killed and wounded behind them. It had been a bloody debacle for the Germans. Hundreds of Lanskanecks were already dead in the breach. Many more had been dragged away or been carried by buddies back to their trenches. Renaissance medicine being what it was, the dying, just started. No money Max and the King of France were not happy with this attack. The besieging forces have had serious problems of their own to contend with. From the outset, national differences have been a source of friction between the four nations of the army, French, German, Italian, and the small Spanish contingent. The French were considered arrogant, the Italians cowardly, the Spanish 
lazy, and the Germans barbaric. It also did not help that the forces of the League were deep in hostile country with a peasantry that hated them. In a couple of areas, the peasants grew so tired of the foreigners that they revolted and attacked them. A hostile peasantry made the chore of acquiring supplies almost impossible. Food was short and of poor quality. The French, being French, were particularly troubled by the shortage of good wine to be had. After a month, they were losing patience and ready to move on to greener vineyards. Among the Germans, desertion was a huge problem. The countryside around Padua was rich. Many German Landsknechts decided to return home as rich men after looting the fine houses around. And finally, the Venetians were doing their own bit to make the enemy feel as low as possible. In the days after the failed assault, the Venetians taunted the enemy to try to attack the Bastion of the Cat, as it was now being called. They captured a cat in the city and tied it to a pole by its tail. Now, obviously, in our age, this is wrong. But animal cruelty was not an idea familiar to people in the Renaissance. They were still wrestling with the idea of human cruelty. The defenders would periodically arouse the cat so that it cried out and then taunted their enemy to come back again by singing with great revelry, Up, 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 who wants the cat? Come to the bastion and get it. Where she stays, tied to the spear, there you see her waiting for you. Up, 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 who wants the cat? The Lansknechts did not want the cat anymore. Yet the emperor was sure that one supreme effort would conquer Padua. Had his cannons not done their job? Was his army not superior to the garrison? On the 29th of September, he called a war council together with the French. There he declared that Padua was ready to be taken, that with the great breach in the wall, that with the enemy holding only bastions and the comparatively weak Tirada, that determination and skill was all that was required to carry the city. The morale and the effectiveness of his Lansknechts had waned, but the Knights of France, the best and most determined fighters in the group, would tip the scales back toward the Allies. The Emperor proposed that they assault the breach on foot, side by side with the Lansknechts. This would undoubtedly carry the defenses. The French response seems to have been made by the famous Chevalier Bayard. According to a biographer, he is supposed to have said, The king has no soldiers in his ordinance companies who are not gentlemen. To mix them with the foot soldiers who are of a lower social status would be threatening them unworthily. Does the emperor think it fitting to put so much noblesse in risk and peril by the side of conscripts who are cobblers, blacksmiths, bankers and laborers, and who do not hold the honor in like esteem as gentlemen? In other words, he said, we're too noble to fight amongst common foot soldiers. But the French were willing to be reasonable. Since they were attacking Padua for the German emperor, 
they said that if his German nobles were willing to fight side by side with the French, then the French would attack on foot into the breach. Unfortunately for No Money Max, his nobles refused to fight on foot like common soldiers. German nobles only fought from horseback. Three days later, Emperor Maximilian decided that Padua was impregnable. On the 1st of October, the Imperial Army folded their tents, packed their gear, and started a retreat from Padua. Venice was victorious. And for once, Guido Rangoni had picked the winning side. His service with the Venetians would prove pivotal in protecting his relatives. When the Pope demanded that his uncle Hermes Bentivoglio be sent to him in chains, a deal was worked out whereby Hermes Bentivoglio left Venice and lived under house arrest with his wife's relatives near Rome, where Hermes would remain until breaking out during the next summer. But now we're really getting ahead of ourselves. Venice, and more importantly Guido, were now tasked with driving the forces of the alliance from Venetian territory. In our last episode, we spoke of the happy-go-lucky adventurer Leonardo Trissino. A few months before the siege of Padua, old Trissino had come from exile in Germany and carved out an imperial fief for himself in northern Italy, an imperial fief taken from the lands of the Republic of Venice. This fief consisted of three cities, Padua, of course, as well as Verona and Vincenza. Venice had now reclaimed Padua and doubled down on it. Emperor No Money Max now conceived of the idea that he would allow Venice to keep Padua while he retained the former Venetian cities of Verona and Vicenza. He sent heralds to Venice with a list of prisoners he was holding. This was a courtesy to those Venetians who might be wondering after missing loved ones. He offered peace on the terms he had conceived of, Padua to Venice, Verona and Vicenza to the Empire. It was yet another staggering miscalculation of the city on the lagoon. The warrior kings of Europe were apt to see the merchant republic of Venice as soft men of commerce. They rarely understood the steel it took to run a commercial empire in a world of pirates and brigands. Venice was going to take back Vicenza and Verona, and then send the German barbarians back over the Alps where they belonged. The Venetians made their intent clear the moment the Germans left Padua. If no money Max thought he was going to conduct an orderly retreat to Vicenza, he had another thing coming. Guido Rangoni stepped from the wings and back onto center stage. He gathered his outfit together. Two hundred cavalry less losses incurred in the defense of Padua. He launched his mounted crossbowmen after the whole damn German army. According to the Venetian chronicler Sanudo, Guido Rangoni took on 8,000 retreating infantry. His mounted crossbowmen must have been riding in a great wheel, going forward and delivering quarrels into the mass of Landsknechts, then reloading in the saddle as they rode away, only to come back a moment later with a fresh volley of quarrels. It is said that the hardest maneuver for any army to perform is an orderly retreat under pressure. No money Max was having a chance to live this axiom. His army was melting away under the pursuit of the Venetian light cavalry. Lack of supply and lack of morale was making his soldiers think fondly 
of home. Worse still, the city they were going to wanted them about as much as they wanted plague. Under this relentless pursuit, things kept going wrong in the retreat. Most egregious and certainly most offensive to his imperial majesty was allowing some of the emperor's massive cannons to tumble into the rivers they passed. Of course, the artillerymen may have simply been trying to lighten the load to hasten their retreat. Emperor Max called upon his ally, King Louis of France, for help, but the king could offer him no assistance. He was up to his ears in Swiss, not the cheese, but pikemen. The pikemen of Switzerland, egged on by the Pope, had invaded the French domains around Milan and now threatened to cut off the French army near Vicenza from its bases to the west. It was all Louis could do to hold on to the lands he already controlled and keep supplies going to his army. Tiring of the Italian heat, and probably wishing for some good beer, No Money Max slunk back to Verona and then took the overland route that went from that city all the way across the Alps and back into Germany. The people of Vicenza rose against the Germans, and that army passed back to the last of old Trasino's cities, Verona. This strategic city controlled the direct overland route to Germany. This geography had long made it one of the wealthier cities in northern Italy. Without the emperor present, the German troops seemed little devoted to the idea of holding this city too. But the Venetians were not in a position to take advantage of this. Much of the Venetian army was still in Padua. Lucius Malvezzi and most of the other commanders refused to move forward until they were paid. Again, Venice was desperately trying to scrape together enough gold to make payroll and urge their troops in Padua to move forward at once, an order which they refused. In the meantime, the French managed to scrounge up reinforcements faster than the Venetians could scrounge gold. Then the French rushed a force to Verona. By the time Lucius Malvezzi and the rest of the Venetians arrived in strength, the city of Verona was unassailable. Stalemate would be the operative word in this part of the Italian wars here for the following winter. But elsewhere, a dramatic battle was shaping up between Venice and Ferrara. Vicenza and Verona weren't the only places where Venice was looking to exact some payback. It wasn't even the main target in their crosshairs. That distinction belonged to Ferrara. To understand why, we're going to go back in time from the Siege of Padua and the skirmishes directly afterward. There was a strong tension between the Republic of Venice and the Duke of Ferrara, a rivalry. This conflict stemmed from struggles over the white gold of Renaissance Italy, salt. It was so valuable it was worth killing for. Venice was the big salt dealer in the area, and Ferrara kept trying to cut in on their monopoly. Their struggles over salt had led to a war 25 years before, known, unsurprisingly, as the Salt War. In this war, Venice had crushed the Ferrari's river fleet and forced an uneven peace on Ferrara, a peace that required Ferrara to surrender an area of land known as the Polocene. 
This was a border territory between the two countries, a thin strip of marshy land about 10 miles wide between the Adige and Po rivers, the two largest rivers in Italy. Control of the Polisine allowed Venice to invade Ferrara at will, to launch raids on Sunday morning and be home in time for Sunday dinner. Having control of the Polisine was like getting to keep a dagger at Ferrara's throat. Naturally, the Duke of Ferrara had joined into the League of Cambrai with France, Germany, and the Pope. Recall that in May of 1509, Venice had had their asses handed to them at the Battle of Agnadello. That's about three months before the Siege of Padua. After Venice's whooping at Agnadello, the Duke of Ferrara went straight into the Polisine and drove out the Venetians. For the Venetians, this was not unexpected. The Polisine was a border territory and it was the nature of border territories to be lost at times. But then the Duke of Ferrara did something unpardonable. He left the Polisine. He went over the Adige River, and he invaded Venetian territory. He conquered a half dozen Venetian towns, real towns, with real Venetian citizens living in them. Of course... The Venetians had lost more than a few towns to the King of France and the German Emperor by this time, but they could stomach that idea. Those were powerful monarchs with powerful armies. But the Duke of Ferrara had been a Venetian peon. The Venetians had even kept a steward in Ferrara to tell the Duke what to do whenever Venetian interests were involved. The common people of Venice were infuriated at the Duke's attacks on their territory. How dare he? The people of Venice formed crowds baying for Ferrari's blood. They demanded that the Venetian government take immediate action against the Duke of Ferrara. Under such pressure, the government decided to divert forces away from their attack against the French and to focus on Ferrara. An army would travel south from Padua and retake the cities that the Ferraris had seized. This army would also reconquer the Polisine, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. Venice was also going to launch a large fleet to attack the city of Ferrara itself. The core of the fleet were the 17 war galleys, newly constructed by the Republic, long seagoing ships that carried over 200 men each. There were also dozens of smaller craft in the Armada. Venice had the ships, but they needed crew. Service in the fleet meant full exposure to winter weather galleys were single-deckers without a roof, and there a man had nothing but a cloak and a blanket to keep off the winter chill. To get Venetians and other adventurers to serve in the campaign, Venice promised that those who joined the fleet could sack the city of Ferrara. They could take the city, they could hold it upside down, and then shake all the loot loose from it. And after that, they could hold anyone worth anything for a ransom. The sack of Ferrar would make many rich men. For many, it was worth a few weeks' chill and a little risk to become one of these rich men. By the time the fleet set sail to attack Ferrara, the Venetians could count on a force of 8,000 men on the river. The Venetian commander of the naval expedition was not particularly enthralled at the idea of taking Venetian galleys up the Po River. 
The galleys had a draft of five and a half feet, and the river right then had a depth of six. It had been a dry year in northern Italy. But Venice told the fleet to go. The people demanded it. So the rowers bent to their oars and pulled the massive galleys away from the city, the ships shuffling along the surface of the sea like giant centipedes. The people of Ferrara knew what was coming. At the very first word from Venice that they might raise a fleet, villagers along the Po River abandoned their homes and their farms. They took their cattle inland, away from the river. The people of the city of Ferrara itself had grave doubts about the ability of the duke to defend them despite the walls around the city. They sent their clothes and their jewels to friends and relatives in Bologna. The villagers were right about their farms. Like a plague of locusts, the Venetians alighted upon the Po River and looted and destroyed the villages there. Occasionally, a cannon on the South River bank loosed a shot at the Venetian fleet, but these had no real effect. The level of the river was so low that there were few gun emplacements that could even hit the ships, and the galleys were armed with cannons of their own. The Venetians proceeded upriver, leaving fire and ruined villages in their wake. They went all the way toward the city of Ferrara itself, but the Duke of Ferrara had gathered all of his troops along with his impressive artillery train. Meanwhile, his allies, the Pope and the French and even the Spanish, hurried all of the troops they could scare up to help out the Duke. This force was adequate to drive the Venetian fleet and its men away from the city of Ferrara. Venetian dominance of the Pope did prevent the Duke of Ferrara from sending reinforcements into the Polocene. One by one, the cities north of the Po fell back into Venetian hands. Once again, Venice held a dagger to the throat of Ferrara. The Venetian commander concocted a fresh plan to win in Ferrara by bringing the fleet to an area the fleet was familiar with. This was a river crossing located at a bend in the Po, where a small island stood in the middle. To the north was the village and fortress of Policella. To protect the fleet, the Venetians built a redoubt on both the south and north sides of the river. They particularly strengthened the fortress on the south side, the side facing the Ferraris. Its cannons could fire on the Duke's men practically before they even thought of emplacing a cannon to fire on the fleet. This was a crossing familiar to the Venetians. It controlled the most direct route from the Polocene into the territories of the Duke of Ferrara. The Bolognese had crushed a Venetian fleet here some 200 years before, and the Venetians had inflicted a decisive defeat in this stretch of the river during the Salt Wars against Ferrara. This bend in the river had a bit of a mixed history then for the Venetians. To speed up the transfer of reinforcements from the Venetian bank of the river to the contested side of the river, the Venetian admiral lashed his war galleys together, end to end, like a bridge, so that horses could walk the planks from one side of the river to the other without getting their feet wet. Crazy as it sounds, this was remarkably effective, and the Venetian cavalry was soon raiding deep into Ferrari's territory, raiding even to the very gates of Ferrara. 
The Ferraris knew their river, though. They knew the day was coming when the height of the galleys would change, knew that soon it would be high enough for the Duke's cannons to rip open those Venetian galleys that dared ply their river with impunity. The Duke of Ferrara entrusted his brother, the Cardinal, with the task of destroying the enemy fleet. The Cardinal began to scout the riverbank, looking for places to plant artillery. They were planning to take advantage of the coming change in river depth. But the Venetians were also active along the river, and their cannons shot at the Ferraris whenever they saw them. On one of these scouting trips, the Cardinal of Modena was scouting with the Lord of Mirandola, the man who had killed Mancino da Bologna at the end of our second episode. A river galley shot its cannon at Mirandola. The Lord of Mirandola tried to catch it with his teeth. He succeeded. The cannonball took his head clean off. His horse did not seem to notice, but kept riding on with a headless corpse bouncing in the saddle. The sight of it horrified the men in their scouting party. But starting on December 17th, a heavy rain began to fall. According to the Venetian admiral, the river went from six feet deep to 12 feet in a single day. A fresh attack by the Duke of Ferrara on the southern redoubt fixed Venetian attention there. The Venetians were also short of cavalry. The commander of their largest cavalry force in the area was out sick with migraines. His command remained with him. The cardinal took advantage of this and found a spot to fire on the fleet now that the level of the river was rising in the middle of the night. The cardinal brought his cannons into a position where he could reach the Venetian fleet. They could see the enemy fleet in the Po River limbed by the pale light of the moon as they prepared to put their first match to their cannons. The Venetian fleet around Policella was not in a condition for battle, either physically or morally. Two-thirds of its war galleys were tied up and functioning as a floating bridge between Policella and the redoubt on the southern bank of the Po River. They were unable to maneuver, sitting ducks. Morale was low in the fleet, from top to bottom. Desertion was a serious problem, as you would expect in crews motivated by treasure. The captains of the war galleys in the fleet were not even present on their ships that night. All were snug in their beds in the fortress on the north side of the river. All but the admiral of the fleet. He was sleeping in one of the galleys. Faith in the admiral himself was low. Most people thought they should be back in Venice by now, and that the only reason they were acting as a bridge was so the Venetian commander's loot could be more readily brought north across the river. Around four in the morning, the night was torn by fire and explosions as the cannons of the Cardinal of Modena opened fire on the fleet. Right away, a lucky shot smashed through one of the ships and found its powder magazine. In a torrent of flame, the magazine blew up a fierce rain of fire spread to the ships around it. Night was suddenly turned into day, according to the poet Ariosto. The bridge across the Po began to break. The guns still on the galleys tried to fire back at the cardinal's batteries, but the table seemed to have been turned. The guns on the riverbank could now fire at the fleet on the river, and the guns on the fleet could not fire back at the guns on the shore. It was not long before the oarsmen manning the fleet decided that they wanted to go home. But in all of the chaos, one of the large war galleys grounded on the island in the middle of the river. With its stern backing out into the river, it narrowed the area in which galleys could pass. 
since their draft meant that large portions of the river were still unpassable. And as panic spread, there was a stampede to get away from the cannons, to get downstream, to get away from the guns, and if possible, to get back to Venice. This narrow area of passage created a zone of death in the river. It made the job of covering the river with cannon fire all the easier. Ships entered the zone of death, and cannon fire blasted them to pieces. As one Ferrari's commander noted, it was more like a duck hunt than it was a battle. To avoid being blanketed with fire, one of the galleys swerved toward the south side of the river. But they went too far and grounded on the river bottom. There was a body of Spanish soldiers here that raked the galley with arquebus fire as it desperately tried to back off. But of course, the strong current of the river here was driving the ship onto the river bank, and the galley, like all the galleys of the fleet, was short of oarsmen. Amazingly, some of the ships did make it past the zone of death in the river. Unfortunately, in doing so, they simply managed to go out of the frying pan and into the fire. The Ferraris had lined the river bank with more cannons. As the Venetian ships made it out of the zone of death, they had to run a gauntlet of fire, cannons belching flames along the river bank. The Ferrari's cannoneers knew their craft, too. It would take but one or two misses before they found the range. Then, bam, they would blast the ships. Back on the southern bank, the Spanish soldiers found river boats of their own. They swarmed the grounded galley and took control of it. As there was a mass of small craft waiting to take their turn in the zone of death in the river, there were plenty of targets for this now Spanish war galley. They sank or captured many of these smaller craft in the river. This was the last straw for the Venetian fleet. In the increasing panic, large numbers of boats were deliberately run ashore on the north side of the river. There the boats were abandoned. Many other Venetians on sinking ships struggled through the water to the north bank and arrived freezing and half drowned. These were the lucky ones. Those that washed up on the southern bank, the part controlled by the Ferraris and their allies, were killed on the spot. When the sun rose that morning, it showed a river pink with blood. The isolated redoubt on the south side of the river would try to surrender on terms, but there were no terms. There would be no quarter for the Venetians in Ferrara. There would be very little quarter for the admiral in Venice either. The galleys were each worth 6,000 ducats. The cost of the lost ships equaled 10% of Venetian tax revenue. It would be as if every U.S. aircraft carrier had been sunk in a single engagement. Only two of the galleys were returned to Venice. Many of the other galleys had been captured and would soon be restored by the Ferraris and their allies. They would then have a fleet more powerful than that of Venice, at least in the area. But the Ferraris were not able to follow up on their victory. The force that defeated the Venetians was a group scratched together from various nationalities. The polyglot nature of this force had its own inherent weaknesses that became evident in the wake of Venice's defeat. An incident at one of the captured Venetian fortresses best exemplifies this problem. Here, there were two groups intent on looting. A group of Gascon troops from France and a group of Italian infantry. They were commanded by Melchiore Ramazzotto, a.k.a. the priest. In our previous episode, the priest's men were the ones involved in a fight over loot at the fortress in Brizigella. Now, the Spanish at Brizigella had not pushed the matter. When faced with the priest's elite troops drawn from Bologna and the mountains above the city, 
the Spanish had recognized that discretion was the better part of valor, that it was better to live and to loot another day. But the Gascons were stubborn men. They were mountain men, too. These Gascons were prepared to die for their share of the treasure. And die they did at the hands of the priests' elite troops. When all was said and done, thirty-four Gascons lay dead. The priest, the Pope's best infantry commander, was fired. But the damage had been done. The four different forces in Ferrara, the Ferraris, the Pope's men, the French, and the Spanish, were now as likely to view one another as enemies as they were to see the Venetians that way. So here, too, along the Po River, stalemate would be the name of the game, until summertime. missed the debacle at Policella. He spent that winter facing down the French army outside the city of Verona. It was a winter of discontent, of stalemate. The Venetian army wasn't strong enough to attack Verona, and the French were not strong enough to send the Venetians back to Padua. The infantry and artillery on both sides hunkered down in their bases and tried to keep warm by their fires. The cavalry on both sides had another way to stay warm. They left their hearths to engage in a deadly sport of raids and skirmishes. Heart-pounding action could ward off the chill just as well as a pleasant fire. The French were used to dominating in cavalry actions, but that winter, they became aware of a skilled new commander facing them. This commander was enterprising and resourceful. He harried French foragers. He cut off their supplies. He set ambushes. He launched surprise attacks. According to the biographer of the French knight Chevalier Bayard, this Venetian commander lent a real zest to life in what would have been an otherwise dull and dreary winter. Here is an action typical of the cavalry games played that winter. The Chevalier decided to use some foragers as a bait to draw out the Venetian cavalry. He then sent his lieutenant with a small force to accompany them. Bayard himself hid with a hundred men-at-arms in a small village near where the foragers were working. But the Venetian commander, informed of the French action by his spies, thought the two could play at this game. He concealed a detachment of six hundred mounted crossbowmen in an empty palazzo, close to the French line of march. The Venetian commander then sent a few mounted crossbowmen after the foragers to spring Bayard's trap. And that's exactly what happened. With lances aflutter, the French knights surged forth. The Venetians rode off with the French in hot pursuit. The Venetians fled toward the country palazzo where the mounted crossbowmen waited. And the French rode gallantly into the Venetian trap. Once near the palazzo, the light cavalry wheeled about. Hundreds of crossbowmen emerged from the palazzo and its surroundings. The Venetians riddled the French with crossbow quarrels, taking down many French knights and their horses. In the fight that followed, Chevalier Bayard himself was taken prisoner. 
but his fellow French nobles were not going to allow the Chevalier to be captured so. They launched a series of desperate charges with no thought of self-preservation. They reached the Chevalier. A great fight developed with the French outnumbered. At Bayard's command, the French dragged their way back to the main road and commenced a slow retreat. But to show their teeth, he demanded they make a charge every two hundred paces. As described in the biography of the Chevalier, they were outflanked on either side by crossbowmen, and their cluster of men-at-arms resembled a wild boar worried by dogs. At nightfall, the French survivors were able to shake off their pursuers, and they returned to Verona lucky to be free and alive. So who was this cavalry commander? The French identified him as Jean-Paul Manfroni. You might remember him from our last episode. He was the commander captured at Brizigella, the fortress that fell after Hugo Popoli mixed in with Manfroni's retreating forces. There was a problem with this, though. There was a problem with the idea of Manfroni being the commander. He was still imprisoned at this time. He was still languishing in chains. So who was the commander then? We can only speculate. But Rangoni and Manfroni probably sounded pretty similar to Gallic ears. They certainly sounded more alike than any of the other cavalry commanders in the area. The Venetians were also aware of Guido's ability as a commander of light cavalry, for it was around this time that he was made the captain of all Venetian light cavalry, the paragon of everything a light cavalry commander should seek to be. Regardless of whether Rangoni was the Venetian commander that kept the zest in life for the French during this dreary winter, Guido was certainly engaged in this cavalry skirmish as well as countless other ones. There were only around 600 mounted crossbowmen in Venetian service around there at that time, and the Venetians needed to use every one of them in the skirmishes with the French. friend Julius in a while. You remember him, right? The Pope? Pope Julius II had every reason to be happy. He had grown the papal domain. Better still, he had given the arrogant Venetians a major attitude check. And now after their fleet had been crushed at Policella, he had them by the balls. They were pleading with him to be allowed to have their balls back, but it was up to Julius to decide when they got to have them back and if they got to have them back. But he did not want to crush the Venetians. He needed them. He needed their fleet and their army to take on France, his ally. Sure, this would be a betrayal of France. And sure, France had been of critical use to the Pope. It was thanks to them that he controlled Bologna. It was thanks to them that he controlled the Romagna and could recruit the skilled Brizigella infantry. It's doubtful if he ever felt a scintilla of gratitude for their help. Julius didn't really do gratitude. Julius was forcing Venice to change their policy towards the Pope's ally, Ferrara. He made sure that they received freedom of navigation through the Adriatic, Venice's personal sea. He also insisted they were not forced to pay the expensive tolls on ships that went up the Po River. Why was this so important to Julius? 
The Duke of Ferrara had been instrumental in defeating the Bentivoglio when they tried to retake Bologna. The Duke of Ferrara had been providing the guns for the Pope's successful campaign against Brizighella and Rusi. As the flag-bearer of the papal army, the Duke of Ferrara had helped the Pope during his attack on Padua. His crushing defeat over the Venetian fleet at Policella had forced the Venetians to throw themselves at the Pope's feet and beg for mercy. The Duke of Ferrara had been such a reliable ally that the Pope had given him the Golden Rose, the award for his most faithful servant. Negotiating for the betterment of the Duke of Ferrari was the least the Pope could do for this faithful ally, right? Here was a chance to express his gratitude to his most faithful servant. But Julius didn't do gratitude. The Pope had decided that he wanted Ferrara for himself and didn't want to be forced into paying tolls to Venice. Now, what reason did Julius have for wanting the city of Ferrara other than the obvious one, of course, you know, that more cities are better? He claimed that he was angry that the Duke of Ferrara was too close to the King of France. And there was an element of truth to this, but mostly the truth seems to have been this. Like France, the Duke of Ferrara had served his use to Julius. And just like a man whose wife has grown gray and long in the tooth, he wanted to be rid of her, but could not just out and out say that, because then no one would want to deal with him. Instead, he kept making unreasonable demands to the Duke of Ferrara, including demands like, give me a Ferrara, demands that the Duke could not accept. Thus, bit by bit, the Pope obtained his casus belli against Ferrara and France and the Deste family that ruled the city of Ferrara. With Venice in heel, with Bologna firmly in his grasp, and the Bentivoglio seemingly disposed of, with the rest of the papal states quiet, Julius envisioned a new Italian order with himself at the top of the heap. Drive the foreigners from Italy became his cry. Never mind the fact that he had been instrumental in bringing the King of France over the Alps and into Italy. What was a little hypocrisy to a prince of the church. As winter passed and spring took hold across the land, and then summer came and armies started to march in earnest, there would be a new game. The Pope and Venice allied against France, Germany, and Ferrara. This new phase would pit the Bentivoglio on one side as allies of the French and Guido Rangoni on the other as a Venetian condottiere. This arrangement was not particularly unusual. The tangled weft and warp of marriages and alliances among northern Italians pitted many family members against one another. Navigating the situation was thorny indeed. Politics and business meant that they often had to undertake distasteful alliances and make bedfellows of their enemies. No one summed up this attitude better than the Duke of Ferrara at the Battle of Ravenna. His cannons were supposed to be killing his enemy, the Spanish. But caught in the fire were also many French soldiers, his ostensible ally. When it was suggested that he stop firing to prevent friendly casualties, he shouted, Keep firing! They're all my enemy! Four Italians, caught between enemies, 
were forced to fight against family members, navigating the shoals of this conflict was tricky indeed. But in 1509 and 1510, no one had a trickier reef to navigate than Isabella d'Este, wife of the Marquis of Mantua and beloved sister of the Duke of Ferrara. episode, we described how Francis Gonzaga, the Marquis of Mantua, had been captured by Lucius Malvezzi, how he'd been sent to languish in a Venetian prison, how the jailer had greeted him as the Marquis. Here, Gonzaga had corrected the jailer, noting that Gonzaga Jr. was now Marquis and was still in Mantua with his mother. Since the young Marquis Gonzaga was all of nine years old, Isabella d'Este was now in charge of Mantua. She was prepared for this task, had certainly desired to run her own principality. She had been raised for just such a situation. Her father, a man known as the North Wind, for his chilly and implacable nature, had raised all his children to be hard and determined characters, and the apple of his eye, the child who had hit closest to the mark, was Isabella. Despite what many would claim about her later, she never wavered in her determination to get her husband free. But she was equally determined not to give away Mantua in the process. Shortly after the Marquis was captured, she gave explicit orders to her castellans that they should not surrender any of their fortresses, even if ordered to by the Marquis himself. That even if the Marquis were to be brought before one of his fortresses by the Venetians and executed in the face of his own men, they should not surrender their forts. Such a decree would have made her father smile if only the dead could do such a thing. From the get-go, Isabella saw a quick solution to the problem. The French had crushed the Venetian army at Agnadello, and this victory had netted the King of France a great haul of prisoners. The biggest fish in that haul was a general named Alviano. He was probably their best general, certainly their most admired. He was as bellicose as he was ugly and Isabella naturally thought the king of France could exchange him for her husband. Yet Isabella's minister to the king told her that he was unwilling to trade the Venetian general for her husband, Gonzaga. Alviano was a top condottieri, a major league star. Her husband was more of a bench player at best. Not a bad guy to have in a pinch, but definitely not in the same caliber as Alviano. The minister also told her that if she pushed her case, it would only aggravate the king. The king of France did offer to send French troops to help her keep her garrisons fortified. Isabella thanked him for this kind offer, but said she could manage with the troops she did have. When she tried to get no money max to help her get her husband released, he also demurred, but he did offer to send someone to govern Mantua in her stead. He also requested a loan from her. Isabella said, thanks, but no thanks. Isabella was no stranger to affairs of state, but the current situation was the greatest challenge she would face in her life. 
When it suited her, she adopted the pose of an unfortunate woman forced to rule without a husband to guide her, such as when she tried to get Venice to make extra allowances for her husband's care. There was certainly more than a little truth of appearing to be a bit out of her depth. The precariousness of her situation increased after Venice's defeat at Policella. Venice was irate as hell with this defeat. Not only was it humiliating, but it demonstrated that their fleet could no longer operate safely on the Po River. This robbed them of their ability to leverage their power on the sea in land wars. Isabella's feelings on the matter became clear to Venice when a letter she sent to a relative fell into the hands of Venice. In the letter, she exulted in her brother's defense of Ferrara, her home since childhood. Venice accused her of caring more about her brother than her lord and husband, the Marquis, that she was too much of a deste and not enough of a Gonzaga. And to put the screws to Isabella, Venice began telling Francis Gonzaga that the only reason he was still confined was due to his wife's perfidy. Of all the things Venice did to put the heat on Isabella, this was the most effective. This was the most painful thumbscrew. Though she did her best to seem a cool customer, she was tormented by the growing hate her husband seemed to hold for her. Venice knew how well this was working, too. One of Francis's courtiers in Mantua, a pimp and procurer that Isabella despised, sent messages to Venice apprising them of Isabella's worsening mental state. Her husband's psychological state was even worse. Some men bear up against confinement well enough. Francis Gonzaga was not one of these. He fell into a deep despair and depression. He wept continuously and declared that he wanted to die. He begged and pleaded for the company of one of his servants who had been captured with him. Isabella tried to send him friends to comfort him, but Venice turned them all away. The melancholy inflicting the Marquis became so bad that Venice was forced to relent a bit and allow him to change prison cells between day and night. This wasn't done from any kindness, just from the understanding that if he became sick and died, they would lose a valuable commodity. Strangely, help for Isabella would not come from her allies, but from an enemy. The first cracks in the impasse between Isabella and the Venetians were caused by the Pope. During the winter after the siege of Padua, Venice lost their other general. They were seeking a replacement, and various names were brooded about, including that of Lucius Malvezzi. Yet none were really quite satisfactory. The Pope suggested the Marquis of Mantua be could become their new captain general and could fit the bill nicely. The Marquis loved this idea naturally. Venice had reservations. What was to stop the Marquis from just going home once they released him from captivity? It was going to take a lot more than a pinky swear to convince Venice they could depend on Gonzaga. What they needed was collateral, a lot of it. Venice told Isabella that they would release the Marquis and they would make him the captain general of the Venetian army. She just needed to hand over the fortresses of Mantua, Oh, and her children would have to be hostages. And she would have to be a hostage, too. That's all they asked. Isabella told them where they could stick their demands. She wanted to free her husband, but she was not going to give away Mantua in the process. Husbands were easier to replace than a principality, but the Marquis was desperate to escape captivity. He demanded that his wife send their son to the Venetians as a hostage. She refused. 
when it was suggested to Gonzaga that his son could be all the hostage Venice would require to release him, he hatched a half-assed plan to kidnap his son and hand him over to the Venetians. Some men bear up against prison better than others. Gonzaga was not one of them. His plan fell apart. It was going to be up to Isabella to let him breathe the fresh air of a free man once again. But the sharks were truly at Isabella's door now. Her allies were growing restless with her. At the very first whiff that the Marquis might take service as a Venetian condottieri, that Mantua might switch sides, they began to demand her eldest son. Not as a hostage, mind you. Oh, no. For his education. The King of France, in particular, insisted to Isabella that her husband had promised to send her eldest son to be educated at the French court. Isabella played the mom card as much as she could, that under such trying times as she was in, she could not possibly part with her eldest son. It was just more heartache than one woman could possibly bear. As the army started to march once again, the king and the emperor began to lose patience with her, and their demands became more strident. And she would soon see what happened in lands that displeased her allies. In the first battles between the League of Cambrai and Venice after the winter, the advantage clearly went to the League again. The Venetians who had lingered near the French army around Verona over the winter were decisively beaten. The Venetians were sent running back to Padua, leaving Vicenza to the victorious allies. Unfortunately for the victorious German conquerors, by the spring of 1510 there was little loot to be had in Vicenza. The city had passed back and forth so many times, been looted so many times, that getting loot from Vicenza was like trying to squeeze blood from a stone. The villas around Vicenza were also empty. Sure, the Lansconex could do the usual terrorizing of the population and forcing themselves on its women, but men signed up for the emperor's army to loot. They used torture or took hostages when possible to extract details of hidden wealth. But the well here had run dry. As the campaign brought them closer to Padua once again, the Germans became aware of a deep cave system in the hills to the west, a cave system where locals and the wealthy of Vicenza had taken to hiding. The Landsknechts approached the barricaded cave and demanded the people leave. Naturally, they refused. This was a situation the Landsknechts were prepared for. The Germans had a recipe for making chemical smoke to use on people in caves. According to Bellafortis, a manual on methods of warfare, the following technique was to be employed. Wherever people are gathered in cliffs and in caves, whom you otherwise cannot overcome, then you should take mattresses or pillows with feathers, add to that urine and pistol, ignite it so that the smoke arises from there, and those who are in the cave suffocate, thus you get to them. Now we don't know exactly what pistol was, but it was probably either sulfur or gunpowder. Italian sources stated that sulfur was used to kill the people inside the caves. Whatever they used, when it was all said and done, 1,200 people lay dead. The Lansknechts let the cave air out and then moved amongst the corpses, taking what treasures they could find on the bodies and in the cave, without a care in the world as to what they had done. Only one or two people survived to tell of what happened in the cave. As word of this came to Isabella, she could see what would befall the people of Mantua if she kept trying to play the powers against one another. She was going to have to choose a side, and it ultimately became a question of who she thought would most likely to protect her son. 
Her decision would be settled by battlefield events. Once again, the French followed up their victory by attacking Padua, and in the process overextended themselves. They were attacked in the rear by light cavalry forces like those of Guido Rangoni and forced to retreat once again. By this time, Isabella had made peace with the fact that her son would be separated from her. She thought it in the best interest of her family to side with the Pope, for now. She would send her son to live with the Pope. Her husband would serve as Captain General of the Pope's army. In early July, Julius asked the Venetians to send Gonzaga to him to prevent Isabella keeping Mantua on the side of the French. Their alliance with the Pope was too important to the Venetians at this time for them to refuse. At last, Francis was freed. On the 15th of July, he left Venice by galley for Rimini, and then he went on to Bologna to take charge of the Pope's army. Isabella's greatest fear that she would free her husband only to have him conquer her brother and destroy her family's lands would not actually come to pass. While Gonzaga made a show for personal honor that he would lead the attack on Ferrara, his syphilis conveniently flared up once again and left him bedridden. He would not be leading the attack on Ferrara. The Pope's nephew, the Duke of Urbino, thus remained in charge of the papal army. To him fell the mission of attacking Ferrara. The summer campaign against the city opened well enough. He took a few strategic towns from the Duke of Ferrara, but then a rumor passed among his troops that a force of French knights was coming after them. The Pope's army under the Duke of Urbino panicked. It retreated in such disorder back to Bologna that they abandoned a number of cannons to the enemy, all based on a mere rumor. Ferrara was safe. With his campaign going nowhere, Pope Julius was now forced to brave the bad air of Bologna once again to lend his force of character to the enterprise and create a decisive victory. Little did he expect that a lucky roll of the proverbial dice was about to change the whole game. have to talk about the city of Modena. If you've got balsamic vinegar in the house, there's a good chance it's from the Modena area. The same holds true if you have a Ferrari in your garage. Due to an accident of geography and politics, this relatively small city near Bologna became, for a time, the very fulcrum of European war and diplomacy. Modena controlled the route that connected French bases in Milan with the city of Ferrara. This allowed the French to reinforce the Duke of Ferrara at will. Modena was controlled by the Duke of Ferrara, but the big family in town was the Rangoni clan. Guido himself was on the outs of Modena, and so the big cheese was his cousin and rival, Gerard Rangoni. Gerard was also the uncle of Hugo Popoli, and thus he was thoroughly woven into the rivalry between them and their eventual duel. Gerard had been running things in Modena on behalf of the Deste family since the Pope gave the Bentivoglio their walking papers four years back. 
Gerard had been helpful to the Duke of Ferrara and the Pope against the Bentivoglio. We can safely assume he had a strained relationship with Guido. He also used his position to persecute his political opponents. These opponents were allies of Guido Rangoni. This made a lot of people unhappy with Gerard and created great interest for a change in the leadership of Modena. With Modena forming a crucial link, a part of the lifeline connecting Milan and Ferrara, the Deste thought it fitting to have a member of their own family running the show in Modena. We don't know exactly how Gerard felt about being snubbed by the Deste. If he wrote a dear diary entry about his feelings, we don't have it. But if he was not pissed off about it, then he was not Italian. When the Deste governor of Modena fell ill, he was forced to call on Gerard Rangoni to help in managing the factions in the city. Gerard got in touch with Cardinal Aladosi and let him know he was prepared to betray the Deste and hand over Modena to the forces of the Pope. On the night of August 18th, the papal army under the Duke of Urbino approached and was admitted into Modena. When all was said and done, Gerard Rangoni was back in charge of Modena, with free reign to deal with his political opponents. Free reign with a bullet. The city was a powder cake, even without him. Many in the city were still loyal to the Duke of Ferrara, to the Deste clan that had kept Modena relatively peaceful and prosperous for centuries. They wanted them back. They hated Gerard Rangoni for betraying his rightful lords. Just beyond Modena, a French force had gathered alongside a powerful contingent of Bentivoglio supporters. They were conducting raids around Modena and taking other nearby fortresses. The Deste faction in Modena looked to these for rescue. There were others in the city who called those folks blood suckers of the poor that wanted the city to stay faithful to the Pope. They called for great vigilance and kept at work on the walls. But the danger of treason, of some other secret Deste supporter throwing open a gate, lingered on in these dangerous days. Into this powder keg of a situation stepped Guido Rangoni. As a Rangoni and a Bentivoglio, he was the natural leader for the faction against Gerard Rangoni. He would have only needed to say the word, and they would have rallied to his banner. But he was working with Venice now. He was allied with the Pope that had so recently excommunicated him. His heart no doubt supported the Bentavoglio cause, but business was business. So he went into Modena with a powerful force of men-at-arms and light cavalry. He was joined by Cardinal Alidosi, a man who had not so long ago been looking for ways to have Guido Rangoni killed. The Renaissance in Italy could make for some truly strange bedfellows. Guido bid the people, his people, to obey the Pope and Gerard Rangoni. With his intercession, the tumult died down and the threat of the French and their Bentivoglio allies receded. For now. Then Guido Rangoni was summoned to Policella to keep an eye on the forces of the Duke of Ferrara. The constant grind of action had finally taken its toll on Guido, and he became sick. Worse still, there was a shortage of medication in Policella to help him heal. This was just the beginning of his problems. There were doubts about Guido's loyalty, too. Since the Bentivoglio were now on the side of the French, the Venetians were never quite sure whether they could rely upon Guido. 
This issue came to a head when his close cousin, Alessandro Pio, crossed the Po River and threatened Venetian land. Alessandro's and Guido's mothers were sisters and part of the Bentavoglio family. The Venetians sent infantry to attack, but Guido refused to join in, pointing out that Venice had failed to pay him or his troops. Many in Venice began to suspect the real reason for Guido's refusal was an unwillingness to fight against Bentavoglio allies. Guido was removed from his command while people in Venice decided his fate. Many condottieri had been executed by the Venetians for treason like this over the years. For Venice, the situation was a real pickle. The Venetians thought highly of Guido. Guido was the captain of mounted crossbowmen. It's not clear what this office meant exactly. In peacetime, it would have most likely meant he was responsible for defining the nature of training, but it may have simply been Venice's way of saying that he was the paragon of what a leader of mounted crossbowmen was supposed to be. Some in the Signoria of Venice thought that they should make an example of Guido Rangoni to other condottieri. All the men taking money from Venice needed to understand that their first loyalty should be to Venice. Andre Gritti had a different take. Things were going badly for Venice against the French on their western front in the area around Verona in particular. Once again, the Venetians were laying siege to Verona with the French inside. But a French sally against the Venetians' artillery left a few hundred Venetians dead, including the hero of the siege of Padua, Zitolo da Perugia. Andre Gritti thought it foolish to lose their best light cavalry commander just to make an example of him. Venice had many fronts in their current fight, many fronts where a skilled cavalry commander could make a real difference, the decisive difference. And most of these fronts had no Bentavoglio to fight. Bowing to Gritti's superior wisdom, Guido Rangoni was once again returned to his command, and he was sent to fight against the French. Even after destroying the Venetian troops and guns around Verona, the French could make no further headway, but they had a clever idea to attack one of the Venetian fortresses to the south of Verona. Here the French controlled the main river, the Adige, and the Venetians were on their back foot. The French and Germans sent a mixed force across the river to harass the Venetians here in preparation for a larger attack. Unfortunately for them, they did not know that Guido Rangoni was in the area. Guido led his cavalry to the rear of the French raiders, and he destroyed the bridge they had used to cross the Adige River. Thus, they were all trapped. Then he and the rest of the Venetians took care of the rest of the raiders and killed or imprisoned the entire enemy force, over a thousand men. Once again, Guido Rangoni's name stood in good credit, owing to his skill. And then once again in the autumn of 1510, the dark gaze of suspicion would fall on Guido Rangoni once more because of his family connections. They were back. Who? Hannibal and Hermes Bentavoglio. They were making yet another play for Bologna. It was desperate. Another Hail Mary. But by the fall of 1510, Ferrara was on the ropes, with the Pope in Bologna giving impetus to his forces, pushing his forces. The papal army had managed to penetrate all the way to Ferrara. They were outside the walls of the city. To help their ally, the French decided that the best defense was a great offense. 
They reinforced the Bentivoglio with French knights. The Bentivoglio seemed to have had friends in a corridor of land to the south of Modena. They marched through this land without opposition until they reached Spilamberto. That was Guido's old castle, where the Bentivoglio had launched their attack on Bologna at the start of our second episode. Spilamberto welcomed the Bentivoglio. The Bentivoglio were soon launching raids into the territory around Bologna itself while encouraging their allies inside the city to revolt. This dried up the spigot for reinforcements to the papal force around Ferrara. The Bentivoglio pleaded with the French for more reinforcements. Nothing would alleviate the pressure on Ferrara like a direct attack on the city of Bologna. The main French commander in Italy known as Chaumont, came to the area to help them. But the Pope had taken ill and could not be moved from the city. With the Pope in the city of Bologna itself, he was unwilling to make an attack on the walls. He was unwilling to take Bologna. Though the French had the troops for an assault, no one wanted to take the chance that the Pope would be murdered by their troops. Likewise, the people in Bologna did not dare revolt with the Pope in the city. Julius II was considered a bad pope, a wicked pope, but he was still the pope. The Bentivoglio were forced to withdraw, but not before the Duke of Urbino, the commander of the papal army, was forced to give up his attack on Ferrara. The Bentivoglio also managed to shake the enemy's unity. The Duke of Urbino even seized Cardinal Aladosi and sent him to Bologna in chains, claiming treason. The Pope refused to accept the charges against his favorite minister. Though Urbino and Aladosi were on the same team, there was now an unbridgeable gulf between the Pope's leading general and his leading minister, a gulf that would have catastrophic effects for him later. The Pope no doubt noticed the ease with which the Bentivoglio were able to move through the lands that once belonged to Guido Rangoni. No one could doubt the support for the Bentivoglio and the Deste families in these parts of Modena. The Pope sent a summons to Guido Rangoni to come to Bologna and meet with him. Guido would have a lot of explaining to do, for he had been the former owner of Spilamberto. But should Guido go? Would Guido go? A trip to Bologna could just as easily end in a one-way trip to the Castel Sant'Angelo in Rome, where Hugo Popoli was still staying. Or it could end even worse. <laughs> <laughs>